Hello, and welcome to the first podcast of 2021 of Tales from the Ruther, a podcast produced by the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, with the ever-present Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hi, Dan. Welcome to 2021. Did we survive? <laughs> uh, ah. uh, well, just barely, and uh, I'm... I I'm not going to uh, call 2021 yet. I <laughs> oh no no please don't no. <laughs> See we we've all seen those clips on YouTube with uh, people celebrating too early and then they get plowed down. Yeah, I'm not celebrating anything. Not no no no. It's gonna be a long year still. Yes. But we're doing well, folks, because we wear our masks, don't we? Oh, all the time. All the time. Wash your hands. That's what we do constantly. So we have another podcast that is not being made in the Ruther Library itself. But we do, Troy and I and the staff of the Ruther do head down to the Ruther to, to handle requests for our donors and researchers. Like, uh, But we only commute like twice a week to get down there. And the commuting is very easy. I mean, I call Detroit commuting very cute because uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And Anybody in the D.C. area knows that commute can be horrible. So imagine in the 1920s commuting from Windsor, Canada to Detroit. Um, well, well, first you had to take a ferry. There was no bridge. There was no tunnel. And um, what I read was in March 24, just one month, 337,000 people would take that ferry back and forth. And in two years time, that number was well over 750,000. So, you know, the Canadians and Americans believe that the border was like an imaginary line for those who worked here with proper permits going back and forth. Um, but, but what about those without permits or who wanted to remain in the United States to work in the growing auto industry? Well, this is why we talked with Dr. Ashley Johnson Bavery from about her book, Bootlegged Aliens, Immigration Politics on America's Northern Border, that came out last year. Dr. Bravery, who received her PhD from Northwestern University and is currently an assistant professor of history at Eastern Michigan University, weaves the tale of immigration from the 1920s through the 1930s on the northern border of Detroit and Canada. What is revealed is what happened in Detroit affected immigration policy that we still feel today. What we imagine in our modern mind of immigration to the United States is across our southern border. But about 100 years ago, it was the European immigration coming via Canada to the U.S. that had businesses, labor unions, politicians, and the like creating policy and laws to restrict the flow of those seeking a better life. What we really like about our book is how she dissects some of the events in labor history, the folklore of labor history that we hold dear, and shifts the focus on immigrants' perspective and how immigrants, well, were used by both sides. So without further ado, let's hear what Dr. Bavery has to say about her book, Bootlegged Aliens, Immigration Politics on America's Northern Border. So, Ashley, thank you so much for joining Tales from the Ruther Library. Really, uh, really, really enjoyed reading your book. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, even though you're right down the street, too. So, this yes. is just nice. <laughs> um, I guess we should start off with where did you get the idea to study immigration between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario? And while we're at that, um, give, us, give us a hint why you used Bootlegged Aliens as your title. Great, great question. Thank you. So, 
got started in Detroit, I'd actually never been to Detroit at all before I started researching Detroit. Um, I was just interested in immigration. I've always been interested in immigration. I'm interested in the history of people. I love immigration histories of the 1980s that go back, go into particular immigrant groups and cities and neighborhoods. because They help us kind of understand how ordinary individuals, not just politicians, shape the national narrative and major policy changes. So I really like looking at things in that way. So I kind of wanted to do something like that. And you'll be happy to hear that I came to the topic of immigration on the Detroit Windsor border by way of the archives, actually. So I was trying to figure out a dissertation topic and I headed to the National Archives in Washington, DC with an interest in immigration in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, broadly, I wasn't sure what I was going to find. The finding aids uh, for the National Archives in D.C. aren't great. So you kind of have to go there and figure out what's there and right. look at the binders they have. And when I got there, I noticed that there were all these uh, entries um, from the record group on it, the Immigration and Nationalization Service on Detroit. And it turns out that Detroit was the number one place for undocumented European immigration. Uh, at this time in the 1920s. So immigrants who'd been excluded by new immigration quotas would head to Canada and um, then, and they just had to promise, immigrants from Southern Eastern Europe just had to promise that they planned to work as farm laborers in Saskatchewan or Alberta. Um, so once they reached Montreal, they could take a train to Windsor and they'd wait to pay a smuggler to ferry them across the river. So this was something that became um, known as a practice in the 1920s after the U.S. excludes uh, Europeans from coming in in large numbers. And so that brings me to my title, Bootlegged Aliens. So at this time, undocumented immigrants were brought across the river by smugglers who often had also brought liquor across the river. Uh, this is prohibition, of course. So a smuggled Europeans gained a reputation for being tied up in the liquor, liquor industry. And uh, the press and immigration service officials began to call them bootlegged aliens or bootleg crossers. So there, it really emphasizes the link many people at the time made between these immigrants and liquor smuggling, uh, even if the immigrants had nothing to do with it, right? So similar to how today immigrants crossing the southern border in Mexico is sometimes associated with drug cartels and illegal trafficking, even though neighborhoods themselves aren't necessarily mixed up in that. Uh, that makes complete sense now, because I remember seeing stuff about bootlegged aliens when I was in um, the Key West, the Keys. And oh, yeah. You mentioned that. So a lot of rum running during the Prohibition, probably. So uh, yeah, that makes complete sense now. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, why don't we set up our listeners, too, about what era we were living through. Um, a quick overview, what led up to all these various passages of uh, laws that were passed by the government in the 1920s um, concerning immigration? Great, yeah. Um, so by the 1920s, the U.S. has a lot of restrictive immigration laws in place. The Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 excludes Chinese laborers. Uh, the Literacy Act in 1917 uh, requires that Europeans or anyone coming in read um, a line of prose in any language, but there are none that really target what policymakers really want to exclude and are quite worried about at this time, which is the large numbers of Catholic and Jewish immigrants who are coming into America uh, mm -hmm. after World War I. So mm -hmm. 
They really want to focus on excluding them and they can't figure out how to do it in a way that's going to appear fair and uh, kind of not prejudiced. So policymakers, even though they're talking in prejudiced ways, they're talking about how we need to keep America Anglo-Saxon and using all of this language, America has to stay Protestant. They don't want it to um, come out that they're being prejudiced because they're afraid that uh, laws will be too easy to attack then and overturn. So in 1921, to kind of stem this tide of immigration, Congress passes the Emergency Quota Act, which puts temporary quotas in place against Europe, and it sets quotas at 3% of the number of foreign-born immigrants that are listed on the 1910 census. Mm. So, um, but policymakers at this time are not happy with the 1910 census. Uh, because they think that in 1910, by 1910, too many Italians and Poles and other Eastern Europeans have begun to come to the U.S., so their numbers are too high. So they're trying to figure out how to make it so that they can basically make the quotas favor people from Anglo-Saxon Protestant nations and keep out the group they want to, which is Southern Eastern Europeans. And so they toggle with quota numbers and eventually they managed to push the census year back to 1890. Mm. And so this emerges the 1924 Immigration Act famously excludes all Asians um, without exception and sets European quotas uh, to 2% of the foreign born population in the census year. In 1890. So that's supposed to be. Um, and what most people don't realize was that the story was not over then. Policymakers were afraid that they were being too overtly uh, racist and nativist by basing quota years on 1890, which of course is true. So they put a clause in the act that said within two years, a special committee is going to figure out the quote unquote national origins of America and set up new quotas based on this notion. And it's deliberately vague. So they're supposed to figure out kind of the national composition of who uh, of the American people, right? So if you're uh, Polish American, then that would, you would somehow contribute to the Polish quota and all of this. Um, and so the committee starts work. And by focusing on 19, and then by focusing on 1920, the committee has to cut certain Northern European quotas to appear fair. So Germans had the largest quotas under the 1924 Act, and new national origins calculations cut the German and Irish quotas by one half, and Scandinavian ones by several thousand. So this mm-hmm. means that these groups are super angry. People are starting to uh, equate having high quotas with being more desirable at this time. So particularly in Detroit and across the Midwest, where there are large Scandinavian and German populations, uh, these groups band together and form what they call the Anti-National Origins Clause League, and they cause a huge stir. Their main argument, though, isn't that quotas are unfair or bad, it's that their desirable Northern European nationalities shouldn't have quotas. So they don't want to be grouped in with what they consider the bad Italians and Poles and Hungarians, who they say should definitely be excluded, no problem, right? So um, they get, they're so powerful, they get the law uh, postponed another two years. And Herbert Hoover, who is the Secretary of Commerce at this time and is running for president in 1928, sees the controversy over new quotas and he knows he needs the German vote. 
So he says he favors overturning the quotas. And in response to this, a lot of Germans and Scandinavians endorsed Hoover. And but uh, in November, Hoover wins, of course, in 1928. And there's a lot of hope among Germans, Scandinavians, and Irish that he's going to overturn the quota system. But uh, in 1929, he eventually yields to the pressure of nativist groups like the Scottish American Revolution, the American Legion, and the Immigration Restriction League, and he signs the National Origins Act. So, mm. yeah, so he turns around and uh, does the opposite of what he's promised to do. So Germans are really angry, but they can't really do anything, uh, German-Americans this time. And uh, this act sets up quotas that'll last until 1965. So it's you know, important for a long period of United States history. Seriously, it is. And um, not surprising, he, he did a double take on the German population, American Germans. So, right. eh, politicians, what are you going to do with them? Um, <laughs> um, but also in the 1920s, it was a very, cons- some would say it was a very conservative time period in the United States, um, specifically with social issues. And you see the rise of the Klan marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. And this is not too mm-hmm. far off from Detroit as well. I mean, at the end of the 1920s, there was a mayoral race filled with xenophobia, racism, and fear. Um, why don't you just give this flavor of what was going on in Detroit at this time and capping it off with this mayor race? Yeah, so the Klan is super powerful in Detroit through the 1920s uh, into in and backs. Uh, so it focuses, this all comes to head in 1929 um, with an important election that uh, pits a Republican named Charles Bowles, who had actually been backed by the Klan previously and had um, run as a Klan candidate back in 1924 and lost. So he decides to run for mayor again in 1929, and he runs against Democratic candidate John Smith. Smith is a Catholic. Uh, He's a Democrat who had significant pull in the African-American community and with organized labor. Uh, and you really thought that in Detroit, he had the election kind of in the bag, right? He'd won before, uh, and he thought that it was, wasn't going to be a problem. So Bowles, on the other hand, pulls out some stops of his own. He famously had run for mayor as a candidate endorsed by the KKK several years earlier. But this time, he kind of distances himself from endorsing the Klan outright. Instead, he starts to advocate an end to corruption and uh, polit- and he starts to emphasize the politics of law and order. And in this kind of thinly veiled, it's a very thinly veiled racist uh, and xenophobic uh, campaign where he um, doesn't portray himself as a Klansman. He says he represents the moral Protestant respectability of, Amer- of uh, Detroit. And he says Smith stands for the corruption of Catholics and Jewish Detroit. Uh, and which is going to undermine Detroit's democratic system. And it really works. He wins. And to carry out his promise, the Bulls administration oversees a deportation drive in the city that targets Southern Eastern Europeans um, and becomes a precursor to Mexican repatriation and deportation drives in the Depression era. Right, which was very shocking when I read that. I was like, no, but then he <laughs> was going on today. I'm sure he had, had to say sometimes there were some good people in the clan, just kind of reminded me of. Oh, uh, yeah, her. absolutely. Yeah. 
it, it shows how how history does repeat itself and how we if we ignore your book we're ignoring our future so um <laughs> yes there are a lot of parallels yeah <laughs> there are there really are um before we get into the deportation repatriation it's like i love how you, in your book you set up the 19 the beginning of the 1930s with the building and completion of the ambassador bridge which connects um windsor ontario to detroit so instead of taking a ferry now people can just drive over this quote-unquote open border in about 10 minutes they're on they can commute to work basically um mm-hmm. auto and pharma companies were hailing it as the new dawn but then the great depression shifts that whole idea but i love how you use the bridge as a backdrop for the early 30s in detroit so why don't you explain to our listeners this backdrop that you're using Yes, the Ambassador Bridge is so important because uh, Detroit and Windsor are facing uh, the push of business interests and certain citizens who want to facilitate free traffic, open trade, and an open border. And the Ambassador Bridge opens in 1929. It's supposed to really change uh, both Detroit and Windsor. Uh, Real estate companies advertise houses in Windsor housing developments that uh, draw a map showing how easy it is to get from Ford Motor Company in Dearborn to Windsor. So they have a little map that shows what your commute would be across the bridge. And it's supposed to make more exciting real estate and opportunities for both cities, pharmaceutical companies in Windsor, and auto companies in Detroit advertise ways um, an open and easily accessible border. We're really going to turn the area into an international metropolitan region. It's all this focus on international cooperation, how everything's going to um, kind of between the U.S. and Canada is going to create this better place because they have both sides. They have both sides of the border to um, draw on talent, to draw on real estate, all of these things. Uh, and the Great Depression really changes this. Uh, Detroit decimated by the Depression. People in the U.S. Uh, across the world had just started buying cars. And it's one of the first things they decide to go without when times are really tough. So Detroit feels the effects hard and it's even worse in Windsor. Windsor's industry relied not only on pharmaceuticals, but also was dependent on automobile branch plants. So during the depression, both nations focused on their own national interests and neither really wants to emphasize international exchange anymore. So in fact, President Herbert Hoover famously signs the Smoot-Hawley tariff in 1930 that places import tariffs on foreign goods to protect American products and farmers. So basically, no one is in the mood for open borders and an international exchange, uh, even though you know just a couple of years before, it had been uh, something that was so focused on was kind of the um, center point of uh, the opening of the bridge in 1929. Right, right. So a complete, complete switch over. It's amazing how fast it could uh, turn on a pin on with when it deals with immigration, um, yeah. which leads up to what we were talking about a little earlier, you know, just before about the rise of deportation repatriation um, is really in the forefront of both countries. Um, mm-hmm. What impact did this have on Detroit and how did Canada and the U.S. lobby for deportation repatriation? A great question. So both U.S. and Canada lobby for deportation drives during the Great Depression. And a lot of it is actually not about numbers. It's uh, not about, oh, we're going to get all of the undocumented immigrants out and then there's going to be more room for American or Canadian workers. A lot of it is about the fear uh, and about kind of symbolically deporting a certain number of people uh, so that it seems like different governments are doing enough to alleviate the uh, problems, the economic stress, the depression. 
So uh, in the U.S. and in Detroit in particular, local police and mayors target uh, Southern Eastern Europeans who have uh, asked for public assistance and then famously turn towards uh, purging Mexicans from the city. And this is in Detroit. So policymakers in the city work with Diego Rivera, who is in the city uh, painting the Detroit industry murals for Edsel Ford of the DIA. And they work to repatriate Mexicans. So Rivera thought that Mexicans should return to Mexico to help the Mexican economy and uh, to kind of uh, contribute there. So his, his was kind of a patriotic zeal. And so somewhere between 15 and 20,000 Mexicans are sent back to Mexico at this time. It's termed repatriation uh, as if they had a choice, but many are boarded onto trains. Some are even American citizens when they're sent back. So it, uh, and it starts in several waves. Uh, and in Canada, local officials look to the U.S. and see this focus on deportations to alleviate economic ills of the Depression. And their new conservative prime minister, Richard Bennett, enacts a policy that allows any immigrant who has come to Canada in the past five years uh, and asked for public assistance to be deported. So this may not seem too extreme, but remember that this is a depression and that people had what they thought were secure jobs are suddenly starving and waiting in line for bread and coal from the state or from the city government. So deportations in Canada were carried out at the local level in this case. Um, for instance, in Oshawa, Canada, which was the home of Chrysler of Canada, local welfare officials rep uh, reported former immigrant Chrysler workers uh, on public assistance to the state and they're deported. In Windsor, a handful of men are deported. Uh, but uh, Windsor's first Jewish mayor, uh, David Kroll, who is a big advocate of social assistance, actually helped stop the deportation. So it's this big struggle in Windsor over uh, deporting uh, immigrants who are on public assistance. But again, it's a major part of the conversation. And uh, it's really um, something that governments are using to show that they're uh, helping their nation, right? It's a little bit like the tariffs, like closing the border. Right. Right, exactly. And um, speaking of which, uh, with with work and employment, you do not um, exclude Mitch from your book, the uh, labor. I mean, labor's mm -hmm. throughout your whole book, which is, of course, it's the Detroit story, um, and it's always there. Um, you take a good look at the Detroit uh, Federation of Labor and its mm -hmm. president uh, Frank Martel's position on anti-immigration. Um, what are some of the things that you can tell us about what the DFL did? Um, during this time, um, even even in the late 1920s, they were very active in kind of like talking about who is the commuter who's coming in and taking jobs. Yes, yes. So the Detroit Federation of Labor figures super prominently in the book because uh, DFL's president, Frank Martel, as you mentioned, thought stopping what he saw as unlawful immigration would allow Detroit workers to finally unionize. At this time, uh, Detroit is famous for being open shop for not allowing unionization, uh, seen as where labor organizers go to die. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he really uh, thinks that he starts to kind of, um, it becomes a kind of an obsession with him. Uh, and he thinks that if he just stops this flow of labor from Canada uh, into the United States, he's going to be able to reunionize his workers. Um, the Detroit Federation of Labor, of course, is an organization of um, fairly conservative 
uh, skilled laborers at this time. So we don't have a lot of unskilled laborers working or semi-skilled laborers working uh, within the uh, Federation. But um, so Martel, back to the story, Martel becomes obsessed with stopping commuting from Windsor. Uh, so traditionally, thousands of Canadian workers had crossed the border on the ferry every day uh, to work across the border in Detroit. It made up a major part of Windsor's economy and it was completely legal. Uh, it was protected under the Day Treaty of the 1794, which dated to the post-American Revolution era and allowed British subjects to cross into the United States. So in the 1920s, there were about 15,000 Canadian and 5,000 foreign-born commuters coming over from Canada and Martel takes up this campaign against them. He lobbies the Chamber of Commerce uh, in Detroit and eventually in Windsor and casts them as foreigners and a threat to Detroit's labor force. And in 1927, the Department of Labor in the US finally passes an order that bans non-Canadian commuters from coming over. But the problem for Martel is that it legalizes the practice for 15,000 Canadian commuters. So over the next several years, Martel works tirelessly over and over, lobbying against commuting. And even when the AFL president basically tells him, look, back off, this is not that big a deal. Um, we need to worry about diplomatic issues. The State Department's becoming involved. Um, Martel continues. And so by the end, DFL members are actually waiting at the ferry docks and intimidating Canadian workers and telling them to turn around and go back to Canada. So, you know, he just turns to kind of strong arm tactics by the end. And eventually by the depression, the number of uh, Canadian workers has fallen, I think, to around 5,000. But it's still people are coming in. Yeah. Uh, and, in and in 1931, also President Martel um, becomes involved in trying to pass and uphold a law to register all unnaturalized immigrants in the state of Michigan. And Again, the, the new law really galvanizes civil rights groups and immigrant organizations, uh, along with Jewish and Catholic organizations, to fight for immigrant rights. And they think registration and fingerprinting uh, would unjustly target and label non-citizens as inferior. So uh, they managed to get the law overturned by the Court of Appeals. But immigrants at this time certainly would have remembered uh, the DFL and what they would have associated with organized labor's very publicized effort to demonize immigrant workers at the time. Right. It, it's, it's, it's a complicated history with uh, labor and immigrants because um, it reminds me that um, with the beginning of the second immigration flow, you had a lot of um, immigrants, not a lot, but enough to joining the IWW and joining yeah. um, various radical labor side groups and even, even AFL unions. Um, but of course, crushed by the Red Scare um, in, right. after 1919. So it ebbs and flows. And especially in the 1930s, we have this ebb and flow going on. Um, you look at some of the, you look <laughs> at some of labor history folklore. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the Hunger March, where 50,000 marched on the Ford River Rouge plant uh, to demand um, basically jobs, food, everything, and were turned back and four five were killed. But you take a nice deep dive into the Briggs strike, a famed strike here in Michigan, and you spin it with the immigration issues. Uh, why don't you tell us about how you interpreted this strike and the influence on the organizing now of a new kind of union, the UAW and, the UAW and the CIO? Yes, great, great question. So the Briggs strike, which basically 
halt automobile production for three months in the winter of 1933 is often seen by labor historians as the beginning of organized labor in Detroit. It's kind of seen as the spark that ignites workers' consciousness. And I don't think that's wrong. Uh, but uh, just to give a quick overview, uh, Briggs Body Company was notorious at the time for being the worst workplace in the auto industry, the worst place to work. Uh, the company had long hours and very dangerous job, low pay. And this meant it employed lots of African-Americans and it also employed undocumented immigrants. Uh, so in January of 1933, uh, 450 tool and die workers who were skilled laborers, um, and mostly most of these workers were of British and Irish descent, uh, decide to strike without the backing of any union, and uh, they want to protest a wage cut. And so immediately, the Automobile Workers Union, which was a communist-led union, and the Detroit Federation of Labor uh, back the strike, and at its height, um, other workers uh, walk out of the job, and at its height, 12,000 workers a struck, and this put 100,000 workers across Detroit out of work. They couldn't work because Ford Motor Company uh, relied on bodies from Briggs. So many Ford companies had to close their plants. So um, Walter Briggs uh, sees this and immediately calls on strike breakers and sets up temporary barracks inside the factory gates to house them. And the strike ultimately fails. Uh, labor historians see this as a moment of possibility. They're not wrong, it absolutely is. But also, the Briggs strike emphasizes the tensions between organized labor and the problem of undocumented and foreign-born labor, of immigrant labor from Europe. I find that during the strike, immigrants from Europe often just had too much to lose. They might have been undocumented, or most more likely they might have had a relative who was undocumented and they didn't want officials looking into their situation. This kept them either away from the picket lines or potentially often encouraged them to act as strike breakers. So a labor union pamphlet that actually founded the Ruther encouraged workers not to be divided over racial or national backgrounds, which suggests uh, that, of course, they were. So this has becomes a major problem for the strike. So I can look at it from this angle of immigration and how workers are divided over the issue of immigration, of documentation, of or who should be included in uh, the labor strikes and uh, the labor movement. And so I think this matters for the UAW uh, because people like Walter Ruther and other organizers see this. They remember the effects of the Briggs strike. And when they finally decide to organize, uh, manage to organize unskilled workers, they take great care to reach out to Southern and Eastern Europeans. They're particularly sensitive to um, the issues of documentation, particularly as the union movement gains some momentum. They hire Stanley Nowak as the uh, kind of liaison with the Polish, but also the rest of the Eastern European community. And they tread lightly on issues of citizenship. And this uh, is because organized labor had such a nasty reputation as being anti-immigrant in the 20s. So they're really trying to uh, make an about face. And I think that um, some of this legacy really contributes to uh, some of the choices uh, that uh, these early organizers made in the 30s. 
Right. And that, that that harkens back to what we're, I was talking about earlier in the 19 teens and the 19 aughts. That's how unions were bringing the immigrants together. That first, that, that mm-hmm. uh, stroll is like, we are in this together. Um, don't, don't keep looking at each other as your enemy, but we, the enemy is right in front of us type thing. So I, I'm glad they, you know, it, it worked out. Maybe they had an archive to look at. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> You can take that Definitely out. Definitely a memory. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about the U.S. Um, a lot, but what about Canada? This is something that blew my mind in your book, specifically during the Great Depression with the various camps that Canada set up in Port Arthur and Kenora. Um, that's an amazing story right there. But I would like to know is like, but Canada history, they changed the view of the immigrants and the quotas and everything like that. And they made the inroads that America could not and have not done. So there's something there. So why don't you just mm-hmm. tell our listeners what I'm, you know, about these camps that were set up during um, during the Great Depression. Uh, yes. So uh, Canada's a really interesting case study here. The Canadian government is quite harsh during the Depression. Uh, it, of course, interns Japanese Canadians like the United States, interns Japanese Americans. But it also sets up uh, what uh, relief camps or work camps to employ the thousands of young Canadian men, many of whom are immigrants who are out of work during the depression. And uh, these camps are kind of modeled, or the, they're similar to the CCC, the Civilian Cancer Conservation Corps uh, of the Roosevelt administration, but um, they're basically, they send laborers out of cities and out of, um, of nearby areas and uh, put them in camps and have them working under very arduous conditions. And the camps start out in nearby spots, but eventually they're out in the northern regions of Canada. Um, And in these, they have men building roads, clearing snow, making trails. And uh, one of the goals of the camps is to keep these uh, kind of what they call transient suspicious workers from uh, unionizing, organizing, or from uh, joining the Communist Party. There's a lot of fear about uh, these groups and the ideas that the prime minister at this time really wants to just get them out of cities and kind of keep them apart from the general population. Uh, And a lot, again, a lot of the people who are being sent to these camps are uh, first generation or uh, immigrants themselves. So there are people who had come uh, to work in uh, Canada during the 1910s, 1920s, and have found themselves without jobs. Uh, And so um, I think what's different, though, about Canada is that after World War II, instead of focusing on toughening up the border and deportations, like the U.S. does, uh, Canada advocates a more multicultural vision of the nation, Uh, two million immigrants. And at, at this time, there's huge immigration, whereas the United States still has quotas in place. Um, In the 1950s and 60s, two million immigrants and a quarter of a million refugees come to Canada from across the world. And and in the wake of World War, and this is in the wake of World War II, and in 1967, Canada sets up a point system for immigration that's supposed to eliminate racial discrimination. It doesn't entirely, but, um, and Furthermore, in the 1970s, Parliament passes a very progressive law that exempts refugees, families, 
and um, relatives from the point system. So the post-war kind of sentiment and fervor in Canada was to better, to uh, make it better for immigrants to be more open, to be more multicultural, whereas in the U.S., policymakers focused more and more on deportation, on closing the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, for more on that, I'd point you towards Adam Goodman's new book, The Deportation Machine, that just came out uh, a couple of months ago that delves into the history of deportation, uh, particularly after World War II on uh, the southern border, United States' southern border. Right. Well, yeah, so it's it's inc- incredible that Canada like, foresaw all this to create try to create a welcoming country while we were stuck. Yeah, it's very different. Very different. <laughs> and these are our neighbors. Um, so, all right, this leads me to the big question about your book. What is, what is our takeaway? As a reader, what am I trying to take away from your book? I think my, my goal in writing this book and what I ultimately want readers to take away is that I want readers to understand that in the not-so-distant past, Europeans, not Mexicans or Central Americans, were seen as America's dangerous, undocumented immigrants. And debates over them focused on industrial centers like Detroit. So it wasn't just the southern border, uh, Texas, Arizona, the Southwest. Uh, so if you have European ancestors, they might not have come through Ellis Island legitimately to the United States. They might have smuggled across in an illicit way. So, you know, to kind of rethink this narrative of um, that often juxtaposes European, quote unquote, desirability against uh, the path taken by uh, other groups into the United States. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to remember my mom's side of the story. And I think they, one side of them did come through Canada somehow and ended mm-hmm. up in the coal mines in Pennsylvania. So yeah, absolutely. I actually hear, especially living around here, there are all sorts of people who come up to me and say, oh yeah, you know, my grandfather has a story about coming over in a rowboat. That's weird. You know, so it turns <laughs> out people have this in their kind of background. And of course, you know, some people wouldn't talk about that at all, but some people talk about it like, oh, I didn't know it was part of this larger movement. I thought it was just him, you know? Right. Um, Absolutely. I mean, um, I love the beginning of your book where you described, what were they called? The ghost, um, ghost writers? Yes. Yes. Ghost walkers. So one way that uh, immigrants would come across uh, was that uh, smugglers would, this was at a time when the Detroit River would freeze over and smugglers would uh, cover them in white sheets and they would cover themselves in white sheets and walk across the frozen river and they were basically almost undetectable on the against the backdrop of snow and ice. So um, yeah. they called them ghost walkers. Yeah, kind of that great that, image. That's yeah, it is a great image to set up your book for what we're about to yeah. jump into. All right. As an archival podcast, we always love to ask the big question of and this has been a while. You've you haven't been in the Ruther in a long time. Uh you were No, it's been a while. Yeah. Do well, you remember what's collection? A few years ago I was there. <laughs> All right, let's just say that. Um, you, were, you were a Fishman Grant awardee, but um, do you remember what collections you used at the Ruther? And also, what other archives did you travel to to construct this great story? Yes, great. Uh, so first of all, I love the Ruther Library, and so much of my book draws on research from your collections. Uh, specifically at the Ruther, I relied on the AFL-CAO Metro Detroit papers. Um, so for all the stuff on Frank Martel and the Detroit Federation of Labor, that was all in those records. Um, I also used the Maurice, Maurice Sugar papers 
uh, the James Lindahl papers, Joe Brown papers, um, and Richard Frankenstein collection, and the Henry Krauss papers for information on immigrants and organized labor in the 20s and 30s, largely in the 30s there. Um, and the Ruther also has really great resources on community organizations in Detroit that helped me understand immigrant Detroit and what immigrant Detroit looks like. So here I looked at the International Institute of Metropolitan Detroit collection, which has some great descriptions of taken by social workers and women working with immigrant communities uh, about each immigrant community in Detroit, where people lived, what they ate, where they went to church, all of these things. Um, I also looked at the Civil Rights Congress of Michigan collection, the United Community Service collection, and the YWCA papers. And that's just a sampling of some of the things I relied on um, the most to craft uh, my story. More broadly, I spent so much time at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., which houses an incomplete yet important collection of the INS papers, the Immigration Naturalization mm -hmm. Service papers. Uh, and I spent time in the Library and Archives of Canada in Ottawa and the Windsor Public Library. Uh, I would cross the border into Windsor from Detroit where I was staying or from Ann Arbor where I was staying. And I remember the border uh, guard would ask me what I was going to do. And I'd say, oh, I'm going to study undocumented immigration in uh, the Windsor Library. And they would um, invariably pull me aside because that sounded sketchy. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> So, or they'd be like, why are you going to the Windsor Library? There are libraries in Detroit. Right. I know it. <laughs> oh, I need that specific stuff yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But um, because, also because Canada was a British dominion at this time, I spent some time in the National Archives in London as well. Um, and in Detroit, I focused a lot on records from the Archdiocese of Detroit, uh, the Burton Collection, and the Detroit Public Library, of course. And I spent long periods researching in the Ford Motor Company records, the Benson Ford Research Center, and the Bentley Historical Library in Ann Arbor, of course. So uh, because the people I was researching spent their lives trying not to be um, uncovered, it was particularly challenging to find records on them. So I had to kind of find these creative ways to figure out how, who was uh, talking about them and who was maybe taking records about uh, particular people. But, you know, and with a little research on the ground in these various archives, it was able to piece together a picture of what undocumented immigrants in Detroit would have experienced. And, and you and you did that faithfully in your book. You, you, you brought uh, life to a lot of these 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 individuals. Uh, you, you told their stories, which was 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 really nice. It kept it kept me reading on and on and on. You know, thank you. Going. That's what I tried to do. I love the stories of people. Again, brings me back to my uh, the first question. Absolutely. See how we wrap this all around? You know? Yes, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, I do appreciate you being on um, Tales for the Ruther. Um, and again, your book was wonderful. I learned so much and I hope I hope more people pick it up. Thank you so much.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glagner and Troy Eller English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. I, I have grudgingly come to terms with ebooks during this pandemic. How's it feel in your hands? You know, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> eh, it is what it is. I've been reading a lot and drinking a lot of tea, trying to. Get I thought through. you were going to say something else. Uh, well, I mean, not just tea, but <laughs> let me tell you what. Troy, you uh, know we're recording here. Oh, right. 